Welcome to the Self-Fellowship Church Podcast. Here at Self-Fellowship, we exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. Wherever you're listening from today, we hope you are encouraged by this week's message. Good morning, friends. If you're visiting, my name is Alex. I'm one of the pastors here. It's great to have you here. Uh, For those of you that visited a couple last week um, in Lament Week and came back, bravo. Good for you. Uh, Because it was somber, we were looking backwards uh, and just experiencing some of what it is to appreciate that. Man, when change happens, it is difficult. Uh, And this morning we began to sing some of those songs of of what we're going to talk about today, this idea of presence. I asked Aaron if we could sing all 12 verses of Crowning with Many Crowns, um, because it does have 12. And he said, however much extra time that takes, you lose off your sermon. And I said, maybe we should just do two verses. Uh, And then we landed on four. Um, But what a wonderful just joy to sing those hymns. uh, And hopefully you caught the the, the connection with these songs that talk about this idea of awake. Uh, But last week, we, we asked this question. What happens when we encounter change? When we kind of change, whether it's a personal thing, whether we go through loss or something like that, or whether it's a corporate thing, like a community thing, change is this difficult season. Sometimes we want to hide from that, um, but actually what we talked about last week is, is acknowledging that is a very healthy thing. To be able to say, uh, I'm not okay, that's a good thing. It is okay to not be okay. What we looked at is this idea. Change is loss. Loss brings grief. And man, grief is disorientating. I talked about my experience surfing and being tumbled up and down by some waves and not knowing which way was up and which way was down. And that's where we can land in that season of change. We're like, ah, I just don't know where I am. As a community, we've been through change, whether it's the coronavirus season of 2020, whether it's moving from one lead pastor to another, those different things. When we go through those seasons, at times we can say, ah, I don't know where I am. And yet there's this other tension with change. The other tension is that you might find that there's one group of people that are very much, I'm ready to go forward. Let's move. I've been standing still too long. And there might be another group of people that are like, wait, I'm not quite ready to move forward. Now, the tension there is this. If you don't move forward, something stagnant tends to to happen. I, I took these pictures of uh, Brighton Pier, or the West Pier more correctly, in the south of England. This is what it looked like in the 90s when I used to visit as a child. It's what's called a grade one listed building. That means it can't be used for anything other than what it was designed to be. And it was designed to be a pier for people to go on and play games. So uh, this is like mid 90s, just this sense of like dilapidation. To fix this pier, would cost around 35 to $40 million. But you can't use it for anything other than what it was designed to be, so it's very hard to make that kind of money back. People have offered to buy it, and you can buy it for a pound, one pound, which is about $1.25, if you have the $40 million to do the renovations, and then it's yours. Um, but you have to, do it, have, to have to turn it into a pier, so people have talked about making it into a hotel, people have talked about living on it and building a house just for themselves, but nobody wants to... to to change it back to what it used to be. So slowly over the years, this has happened. This is what it looks like today. Slowly this beautiful building, this incredible thing has slowly disappeared into the ocean. Bit by bit it falls away, lost in this tension of not being able to move forward 
but not being able to stay back in its past and its history. Communities can be like that. Now, I want to make a distinction there because in personal grief, man, that can go on for years. And, and I will say this truthfully, you may never stop grieving. And that's okay. In the place you are, you may never stop grieving. Um, and that's okay. But for a community to constantly be caught in this looking backwards phase can be really difficult. I once interviewed at a mega church. And this church had had a very famous pastor who had since moved on. And as I hung out with the people, the staff and people in the community, his name and his aura just seemed to lurk around the building. I was convinced that somewhere there was like an office with a hidden door that was still his office that they'd just never changed and was casually gathering dust. I imagined that the last toilet that he blessed with his presence had never been flushed or something like that. It just felt like this, this awkward tension of not being able to move on. And yet a community has to move on, otherwise it dies. So in between backwards and forwards, one of the most healthy things I think is this idea of upwards. It's this idea of God's presence. If I could have us ask a question this week, it would be how do we allow change to lead us into an experience of God? I need to fire whoever left the question mark off the end of that. Um, it was me. Uh, my own incompetence. But how do we allow change to lead us into an experience of God? That's what we'll see this Joshua community do. Before forwards, there is, there is, there is upwards. So we're going to start. I'm going to read Joshua chapter 1. We'll look at all the different passages as we move forward. Now, Joshua chapter 1 moves straight on from the book before that, Deuteronomy chapter 34. Uh, now, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, that's fine. What you tend to find is that the individual books, there's not a ton of concern about who wrote each book. The Bible actually cares less about those kind of things than we seem to care about them. Obviously, Moses, who's the traditional writer of Deuteronomy, did not write Deuteronomy 34 because it's very hard to write the words, and then Moses died if you're already dead. Um, so somebody else wrote those. And then Joshua chapter 1 seems to follow straight on, and it, and it goes like this. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' aid, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people, get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I'm about to give them, to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon and from the great river, the Euphrates, all the Hittite country to the Mediterranean Sea in the west. No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my, Mo my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn to it from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful whenever you, wherever you go. Keep this book of law always on your uh, lips. Meditate on it night and day, so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Let us pray. Father, as we look at this passage, as we begin to look upwards, God, we know that there's so many different experiences in this room. Some of us have come in hurting. Some of us have come in joyful. 
Some of us look back to a past with so many things we're thankful for. Some of us look back and see things that we've lost. In this moment, we dare to look upwards. We dare to look to you. God, we believe that you breathed into this book that we read and it came alive. God, would you breathe into us, your people, that we might come alive in whatever way we need that. Thank you, Jesus, for your presence with us, with your church, as you promised. Amen. So here we go. First part of Joshua, Joshua chapter 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' aid, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I'm about to give them, to the Israelites. Joshua's first step after this big change, after Moses has died, is to wait. He doesn't move instantly. He doesn't make that first step in across the Jordan into this new land. He waits, and he has a conversation with God. So often when we land in the, the tension of change, our first response is action. We want to do something. And yet, Joshua is wiser than us. Now, one of the things that's interesting is I've, I've called this week upwards, but that can be problematic for some people. You see, the Bible is written in the language of what I would call a three-tiered worldview. So, uh, hang with me on this. You have the middle part, that's the part we live on. And I used the Shire because it made sense. Heaven on earth. And then you have the heavenly realm which God occupies or the angelic forces occupy. And then you have something below us which is either uh, hell or Hades or the grave or someplace that you don't want to go. And, and the Bible, it just really operates in the tension of that's how people saw the world. Quite often, you'll see phrases that will describe the world in that way. Now, we still do some of that today. I'm an unashamed New York Yankees fan. You can hate me all you want, but I started watching the Yankees years ago. And, and this is Gliber Torres. He hits a grand slam. He celebrates. What does he do? He points to the sky. So for a chunk of us, we still continue with that just three-tiered worldview. Heaven is up. God is up there. But if you're of more of a scientific bent, that may cause you some problems. There may be a sense of, how can I take the Bible seriously when it talks about God being up there in the sky, when it talks about a middle ground and it talks about like a hell thing right below our feet somewhere, like if you dig down far enough, you'll reach it. That's caused tension for people for a good hundred years now. The first cosmonaut to reach space, Yuri Gagarin, famously looked out upon this space that mankind was entering for the first time and said, I don't see God up here anywhere. Now, in actual fact, the Bible is far less simplistic in its view than we might think. It is there. There are passages that will say things like this. This is what the Lord says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build for me? Where will my resting place be? There is this sense of like that three-tiered view. But in actual fact, most of the time, it's metaphor. And a lot of other times, you'll see passages like this. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. Plenty of other places in this book, there's this idea that, well, no, God is everywhere. There is no up and down. It's everywhere. That the Bible is comfortable with the tension between the two, comfortable with its use of language one way and its use of language the other way. And if you come in with this sense of, ah, I struggle with the compatibility of faith and science, one of the things I would say is that, that God is, the Bible is actually comfortable with that. 
It's comfortable with the tension there. That it's possible to, to love and enjoy science and yet find this deep faith. The challenge might be for you this week is, are you willing to become open to something more mystic, something that you can't grasp with your five senses? That can be a challenge. That can be a hard thing to do if you've never done it before, to begin to ask that question. Is there more than just the physical stuff that we see around us? What I would say is when I use the language upwards, I'm not using it in this distinct sense of upwards. I'm using it in this sense of looking Godwards. And in grief, in change, that can be hard to do. When we experience something, when we experience a disaster, when we experience a loss, when we experience pain, that idea of grief, grief that idea of disorientation, looking towards God can be the last thing we want to do. There's this passage in Psalm 74 that says, God, take your hand out of your robes. The picture that it gives is a God who is sitting or standing with his hands like this, able to help, but refusing to do so. This is the psalmist's like unabashed expression of like, oh God, why aren't you doing something in this situation? In grief to choose to look Godwards, for some of us can be difficult. For some of us, it could be a, a sort of a mental struggle. We can't believe, we can't bring ourselves to cognitively, cognitively process the idea that there is a God. For some of us, it's, it's an emotional struggle. And then, of course, there's some of us that find it easy. There's some of you that walk through change, and you're like, it's okay. God has this, and that's great. I'm glad that you are one of those people. But often, I am not that person. Often, in my experience of pain, experience of loss, looking to God is a painful thing. Fortunately for us, this Joshua character is wiser than perhaps we are. He, through learned behavior, knows before he moves, before he takes this people that have lost this great leader and says we're going to do something new, he knows to wait. And he's learned that from this guy Moses that he's hung around with for a good 40 years or so. Look at this passage uh, back in Exodus 33, if you want to note it down and read it later. Joshua, right before this passage, the line before this, has, it's, we've been told that Joshua is always present when Moses has these encounters with God. And this is this encounter. Moses said to the Lord, you've been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. Then Moses said, show me your glory. Joshua has learned from Moses, before you move, you have to wait. Before forwards, there's this moment of looking upwards or Godwards, of, of taking pause and bringing God into the situation. And Joshua does this faithfully. Experiencing presence requires awareness. It requires a willingness to stop. As we just looked, there's these passages in this text that we read that say God is everywhere. But I think between us, we'll be honest and say, there might be some of us that we feel like we sense God's presence regularly. There might be some of us that say, that's a difficult thing for me. And right now, where I am in my life, I'm just not sure that he's with me in the way that I would like. 
there might be some of us that have never taken that step before personally. And we would say that if we experience God here now, that would be for the first time. And that's okay. All sorts of different backgrounds. And yet the first step to experiencing God's presence requires awareness. A few years ago, I was wandering down the street of my hometown, and I saw a huge crowd with a, uh, a big Rolls Royce sort of like in the center of them, and then the building door opened, and this guy walked out. Uh, if you can't see the picture clearly, it is Simon Cowell from The X Factor, wandered out. Now, if you don't know who he is, he's on TV judging American talent. British people's main function today in the world is to judge American talent. Uh, apparently, we have no discernible talent of our own. Uh, and, and yet, so that's what we do. Uh, we're on TV doing that. Uh, and so this crowd was waiting. They must have heard somehow that he was there. And so there's this sense of the, like there's this rumbling of anticipation. And then when he walks out, everyone's like, ah, oh, Simon Cowell is here. Celebrity culture is one of the few avenues that we have into seeing, like for the first time, maybe what, what it is to experience something bigger than us. Now, of course, the experience of Simon Cowell is nothing like the experience of the creator of the universe, but it gives us some language to use for those people that were aware it was a big moment. For me, who was unaware, it took a while to catch up. A second story to sort of parallel with that, this is the birth of my uh, third child. Uh, Jude's first visitor was not the normal grandparent, was not the normal sister or brother or something like that. It was Santa Claus. Not the real Santa Claus, like one of his fake minions that helps him, you know, those guys. Um, he turned up and wandered in. It was December 12th. And all the way through, I'm thinking, there's something wrong with this Santa Claus. He's far too athletic to look like a Santa Claus. He just doesn't fit. And then his wife was young and she was pretty. And I'm like, ah, there's just something wrong with Mrs. Claus as well. They're not the usual jolly sort of fat figures that you're presented with. And it turns out that all the time, Santa Claus was Jim Harbaugh, the coach of Michigan football. Now, as a huge Wolverines fan, like at that time, Jim Harbaugh was like, ugh. he was almost like the voice of God to me. He was the guy that was going to save our dilapidated program. And three years on, I'm much more cynical than I was then. But at the time when I found out, I was like, I missed it. This guy, he caught it. I found their picture in the, the paper. They sent it in. This guy knew who was with him, and I was caught unawares. There's this distinction between being aware of God's presence and not being aware of God's presence. It doesn't mean that it's not here. It just means that there's a chance that we might miss it. It means there's a chance that we might miss it. The question I would twist then is, is are you aware that God is there. What does it take to experience God's presence? What does it take if you're someone who's never had that sense of, oh, God is here with me now? What does it take to move into that for the first time? Maybe that feels a little too risky for you, maybe a little too mystic for you, and yet, all through history, there are these stories of people that have encountered God, and their lives have changed dramatically because of it. This idea is, is present in the New Testament as well, not just the Old Testament. This is some of Jesus' last words to his followers. I am going to him who sent me. None of you asks me where you are going. Other, rather, you are filled with grief because I have said these things. But very truly, I tell you, it is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the paraclete will not come to you. But if I go away, I will send him to you. I left that word paraclete in the original Greek language. It could be translated as advocate or lawyer or something like that. It's Jesus' way of referring to the spirit that as followers of his, we believe that we engage with. But the, the word paraclete most comfortably means comforter. 
Someone who comes alongside, someone who brings that sense of comfort. I have a series of photos to show you. This is from some Christmas photos we took a few years ago. I've always been intrigued by this willingness to receive comfort, at least from the perspective of my children. Watch what happens in this series of Christmas photos we tried to take. First photo, everything is fine. Sisters holding hands, all is well. Second photo, things have started to take a turn for the worse. Uh, third photo, younger sister is no longer happy with oldest sister. Older sister is still smiling angelically. Uh, finally, we see like the full horror of everything has gone wrong. I am broken, I am angry, I am hurting. Uh, and then youngest sister throws self on floor. And then this is my favorite one of the, the bunch. There's, there's nothing to see here. I had no part to play in this. And of course, as sisters, there's regularly these interactions of like, ah, we get angry with each other, we get, we, 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 you know, we get upset. What I noticed is this. For years and years, it took Gigi a long time to accept comfort. I would gather them both to me, and it would sense Elena's breath starting to align with mine. The, the sort of the desperation started to disappear. She would slowly start to breathe at my rate, and she would lie there for 10, 15 minutes, and, and peace would come. But for Gigi, it was much harder to do that. She would get up, she would run off, she would go looking for comfort elsewhere, or she would just stand screaming. Now she's gotten much better over the years, but it was just fascinating to see this difference. And I think that is true for some of us as well. There's this question of, are we those that are willing in God's presence to take comfort? Are we those that are still looking to find that somewhere else? There's this incredible story uh, from a few years ago of a bunch of Navy SEALs that went in to rescue some hostages somewhere overseas in places that I don't want to go and, and don't know anything about. But they got in, they got rid of the bad guys, as, as I'm told, and they, they went into where the hostages were being held, and they undid their bonds, and they'd been kept in this dark sort of underground place, uh, and they said, you're free to go, and nobody moved. They just stayed. They were terrified. They didn't know. They were disorientated. They were lost in this process of loss and grief. And what it took was this. One of the, the Navy SEALs took off his armor, put down his gun, and climbed in amongst the hostages. Sat there where they could feel his presence, where they could sense his breath in the room next to them. And he started to begin to tell them, it's okay. We're here to help. I'm here to rescue you. Come with us. You're safe now. It's so interesting what it took for them to be willing to move. And I think there's this wonderful parallel between this Jesus story that, that talks about the idea of a God who doesn't stay distant, but is willing to come to our rescue, to be like us, to experience what life is like at our level, and say, come with me. There's a new story for you to live in. The word comfort or consolation in Hebrew is a mixture of two different words. The letters, the consonants are the same as like two words, imagine them put next to each other. Now I don't know what that means necessarily to a person from a couple of thousand years ago, but the two words that it would make up are, are rest and warmth. There's this idea that comfort consolation is about warm rest. It's about warm rest. My wife is very smart far smarter than me and the rest of my family, I believe. We go to this place on the southwest coast of England. Uh, sometimes we have great weather, and sometimes the sea is delightful. There are other times where it never gets above 60 degrees, and the water temperature never gets above 50 degrees or something like that. And yet my family are so addicted to the ocean that every single one of us will still be in the ocean regularly during that week. 
My wife will not be in the ocean during that week. What she does is this. She sits in the glass room, or this one particular year I'm sitting thinking of, she sat in this glass room overlooking where we're all bathing, and she found the biggest blanket she could possibly find. She made this actually herself. Um, this is about the weight of a small child, um, <laughs> or even a big child, and it's made up of yarn that we got a 90% discount, and it still cost $90. So you're looking at a blanket that's worth, I don't know, like 800 and something dollars here or something like that, and she made it herself. But it's, it's this, this idea of like, ah, she would sit wrapped in this blanket of warmth, and she knows what it is to rest. That's this picture that we're given when we talk about the idea of God's presence, this, this comfort, this warm rest, this sense of relaxation of like, ah. But this blanket is also something else. It's not just warm. It's what's called a weighted blanket. So there's been some research done over the last few years that says that a blanket of a certain weight over about 20 pounds for people that suffer from anxiety, ADHD, autism, actually can just bring this sensory level of comfort. It brings this like, place of like, ah. I feel okay, I feel like I'm safe. When we looked at that passage earlier, I read in that, that liturgy, that, that passage from Second Chronicles, it talks about God's glory coming into the temple. Now, that's a foreign word to us. What do we mean by God's glory? The literal Hebrew word for glory, kabod, is from another word that's very similar, kabad, and it quite literally means weight. Quite literally means weight. Never in a bad sense, never in a weight that you can't handle, but always in a good sense. So when we talk about presence, all these words sort of, sort of align with each other. There's this idea of warmth and rest and comfort and weight and safety. When we talk about God's presence, those are the things that we're invited into. And isn't that good news for a people lost in change? Isn't that good news for people that are lost in loss, that are struggling in grief? that are going through disorientation. There's this invitation to this presence that says, come and sit and experience warm rest. Experience what it is to have that weight rest upon you. And know that you are safe. There's this connection between warmth and rest and God's presence. And that is there in that passage where Moses has that conversation with God, with that Joshua is sitting waiting in. The Lord said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Presence and rest are related to each other. It's becoming aware that God is there. It's moving from the question of are you aware to, to becoming aware of like, ah, God is here and he was all along. But that presence, that rest for waiting is always purposeful and he's always getting ready for that next move forward, which we'll get to more completely next week, but we're going to live on the verge of today. This is the next part of that Joshua passage. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn, to it for, turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night, so that you might be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. When we think about the law and this word, for some of us that have been around for a long time, we tend to think about actions that we're supposed to do, rules we're supposed to keep. And yet central to the law for these Old Testament people wasn't just stuff that they had to do. It was a knowing of who God was. 
This is Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. It's called the Shema. It's like what Jesus said is the centerpiece of the whole Jewish law. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Why did this people need to know that the Lord was one? Why did they need to know that God was one? They lived in a time where there were all these competing deities around. You had gods of particular nations, and there was always this question of which god is stronger when you're in which different place. And then there were these gods that you had to keep happy. There was the river god who made sure that your crops got water, but there was the god of the harvest that made sure that the crops grew, and you, you had to make sure that you kept all of them balanced and you could never let one of them get unhappy with you. You had to appease all of them, and, and showing too much honor to one might mean that you didn't show enough honor to the other. And this God starts to say to this people, actually, you don't need to worry about all of those different types of things. I have you covered. It's funny that it, rem it reminds me of my experience with my kids as they've started to ask me questions about monsters. Now, we all know monsters aren't real, right? I think, but I told my kids, I didn't tell them that they were, but when they came to me, I'd read this parenting book, and in no way am I prescribing this behavior, so if you're a parent learning stuff, don't do what I do. I just, I'm trying it, I'm experimenting. But when they came to me and said, they asked me about the monsters, I didn't tell them monsters weren't real. Do you know why? Because that just tells them that you don't know about the monsters. It means that you're weak. It means that you're a failure. They're like, no, mom and dad don't know about the monsters. I'm in real trouble. Like when the monsters come, they won't even be there to protect me. So what I did was I told them that daddy eats monsters for breakfast. <laughs> and that seemed to work. So in actual fact, they started going to their friends. And when the subject of monsters came up, they were like, no, you don't need to worry. My dad eats monsters. Um, now, again, I have no idea if it's good or bad. It was a theory in a parenting book, and I went with it. The Bible is very comfortable with the framework that there is one God who is the God everywhere. But when it talks about these other gods, it talks about them often in the sense of, don't worry, there might be monsters out there, but I have you covered. You're going to be okay. This place of presence is this place, it's like this thing, this starting point to move on from. It's this waiting, and you're in this sense of safety, in this place where God is there, and it's this getting you ready to go out. And when you go, you take that presence with you. And it doesn't matter what you face, because this God knew all about those things that were in front of you. And I gave you a little picture of Monsters, Inc., because <laughs> I was talking about monsters. There we go. Some of you will go home and watch that movie just based on that picture. Like, oh, that was such a good movie. I've got to go back and watch it again. And don't tell your kids that monsters are real. And this is the final passage. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Don't worry about what's in front. In this moment, I am here with you. And the same God who is here will be there in the next step. And the step after. And the step after. And the step after. That's what presence is all about. You haven't moved yet, and you get, you get to picture this God on that journey with you wherever you happen to go. If God is working in your life through this ministry, join us in reaching others by partnering with us today. You can give online at southfellowship.org or on the South Fellowship Church app. Thanks for listening, South family. Have a great rest of your day.